You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. We are getting straight into it with my favorite subdivision project management expert. It is Dave Gilbert from Strategic Surveying. Dave, thanks for coming in, mate. Oh, thank you. And hello to everyone. We are talking today uh, about common mistakes of subdivision. There's the little things that turn into big problems that uh, if, you, if you haven't got your head around these issues, will turn your lemonade into lemon the other way. Oh, well, wow. Where do we start? I think we should start from underestimating time frames. That's the easiest one to explain, I think. Yeah, that's, that's probably it's a good start. Uh, We've been over it before. We have. Um, it's always a good reminder, especially in, in these times where we are at the moment with people pushing to get projects done as quickly as possible. We're in a bottleneck right now. We are. So in terms of just doing a land subdivision, minimum time frame, you're going to be looking, if you're really pushing it, nine months. That is granted that everyone is getting stuff out to you as quickly as they can. And that you're doing it as quickly as you can. As you can. So yeah. if you think about it right now, it is the end of July. So essentially start of August. It takes nine months to, to get these titles we want new titles to do a development maybe get the grants in time you better be getting on your bike very quickly and hoping everything works out exactly how you plan exactly yeah a lot of people still come to you thinking it uh, takes two months to do a subdivision yeah yep, yep. Uh, quite often we have people come through that actually have already done the build i've had the build done for a couple of years and now looking to either sell or, or move on and then they come back and say oh can we get our titles for these? In those particular cases, it's remind them, well, what sort of titles do they want to do? Do they want to be built strata or do they want to go back to survey strata? And the next one we move into would be underestimating costs, right? So if we underestimated time frames, time is money. So not only do we have holding costs that come into this, which a lot of people don't factor in at all. Mortgage, if, you, if you're in the market doing this for nine to 12 months, that's nine to 12 months of interest that you have to factor in. But more importantly, we still have people come through the door who think a subdivision costs $2,000. But that's just you know, a lack of understanding or experience in that field, which we're all going to have different areas that we haven't had experience in before. Uh, so that's a part of what I enjoy about my job is actually education. So it's letting the people know that these are the expected costs and these are the reason why, and this is why they arise. So having an idea of the full project at the very start is going to be how you're going to minimise your risk of you know, missing things or not picking things up initially. We could have done a redesign to save you costs at the very beginning. You're going to have costs come up such as Water Corp, that's going to be pretty standard. Western Power, that cost can actually change depending on how you want to do your layout. It's just not the fee from Western Power alone, it's actually your subcontract, your electrician that's going to have to do works later on. So it's these works that are flowing from one to the next. Yeah, they're dependent on your strategy, on your design. Yeah. You've got uh, all of the cost implications of the conditions placed on you from the local government. And that's anything from constructing the common property to crossovers, uh, to demolition, uh, tree lopping, all those things can cost you know, tens of thousands of dollars normally. And then you've got all your professional application fees and surveying fees, land gate fees. And that's about 10 grand itself as well. So really when we're talking about a median uh, sort of top of the bell curve price, what number would be an average for you on a, on a standard sort of duplex or a triplex to get a subdivision done as costs, not including holding costs from the bank? So just your subdivision costs alone for a two-lot subdivision, you'd be looking at somewhere around probably 50K. If you're doing a three-lot subdivision, probably somewhere around 65. But that's not taking into consideration your actual site. So if you have certain soil conditions that require additional works, 
well, then they're going to be more costs. Yeah, look, and, and if you're in a location where, yeah, you might need to do a geotechnical report, a soil test, if you're close to trees in a, in a park, bushfire management plan, yeah. all these extra conditions can come up. And if you're in a very hilly area uh, with a lot of slope, you could have tens of thousands of dollars of retaining that come in as well. Uh, we've seen subdivisions that can be $200,000. Yeah. Next yeah. level. Yeah, and you had the exact same design in another suburb that is only you know forty two grand. Yeah, and there goes all your profit. Yeah. Okay, so that's time frames, costs. Next thing, which I think is much more uh, broad base, is thinking about just the bigger picture. Just because you could do a four lot subdivision on this block, doesn't mean that's the best outcome to try and sell them or even just to try and build anything on them. So just because you could doesn't mean you should. And a lot of the time we're advising clients to lower their sights a little bit and think of maybe a much more functional triplex rather than squeezing out a quad just because the zoning allows it. Yeah, so that's the difference between why the planner inside of me and the surveyor of wanting to get the most out of it that I can compared to the other side of, you know, what is this actual end product that I'm going to bring to market? Because at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. You're selling it to other people and you want to bring a product that they want to buy. So we need to make sure that that design, whether it be a certain square meter ridge that we reach for each lot or a certain width so we can get a certain design that we know that they can actually build in the end, that's going to be very important to actually getting rid of those properties at the end of your subdivision. It can be very deceiving seeing a square meter number on a block especially when that block's dimensions have a lot of angles in them because you can't build on angles yeah not cheaply not at all and you can't build on setbacks either so that's where you have this design in front of you where it looks but you see them all the time where the square meterage is the same size for each lot but they're not the same shape so you know that you've had to give up something in doing so you know a lot of those where it's a built form first you'll see the variation in those areas but the overall scale of each unit is the same size. So just looking at a built form as it already is, you would assume that they're the same size lot. But if you go to the layer deeper and you look at the land area, they're all different sizes because of the setback requirements, because of the late, the lot configuration. Having that experience of going that next step further is going to be beneficial to anyone looking at doing developments. It's quite interesting when you think about, for example, a standard triplex lot. Usually the most desirable one is the front one because it's street fronting. And then the back one because it's the most protected, I guess. And then a lot of the time, the middle one sells last because it's sort of stuck between the two. The funny thing you'll find is though that uh, generally the square meterage of the block of the middle one is the smallest, but it can often be the biggest house because it has the least setbacks to have to work around and therefore is quite a square property as well, probably the cheapest one to build uh, and often has actually internally the biggest living area because it doesn't have that front setback of the front block or the turning circle setback of the rear block. Yeah, if you're going to be in an area in the future, the city of Joondalup currently has a draft local planning policies where they're looking to make some amendments in terms of the scale and shape that you can build on. That's why it's going to be important when you look at your planning perspective and then also thinking about, well, what can the person who purchases this can actually build on or what can you build on there yourself? Uh, And that's going to change your, your lot shape and your lot sizes. Finally, we have our last common mistake, which is probably our biggest and broadest mistake. It is not doing your planning homework. Now, that's a very wishy-washy thing for us to say, but more specifically, there's so many parts of the, the black and white literature over and above the zoning, which says you can turn this one block into two or three or four or 20, that actually determines the costs of the implications and the conditions to do that subdivision, but also some of the uh, the factors that might actually actually 
override that and stop you doing a knockdown or doing a subdivision in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the best example is that one of the city of Juneau that we just mentioned previously. It's the same council, but you could be, say, a two-year difference in terms of time frames and end up with a very different product that you could have done the year before to the year after. Because the planning policy has changed about how you can build on that site. Yeah, exactly. And that's not a state-driven directive either. That's one from council themselves who are actually approving the build. So it's not just a matter of knowing the differences between each council, but also being on top of any changes or potential changes so we can mitigate the risk going forward. It was also things like, you know, heritage. A lot of us don't think that the property, that, that crappy old property sitting there in Maylands could actually be a heritage listed property. Yeah, and we've got the different levels of heritage as well. So you've got the state level where it's very easy to find that on any website. If you just Google the as address. As a register. As a register, it usually just comes up straight away. Um, but at your lower levels, just your local council might have put it into their own inventory of heritage or important areas or properties which may actually be a impediment to your actual development potential for that lot. But we, uh, there's something that we came over this week. We looked at a site in Maylands where the young lad had, uh, had bought the property and then before he went forward and looked to develop it, that house, that old house on the front, which was a knockdown most of the days of the week, was then listed on the local council register for heritage and that pretty much stops him doing that development to the, its full potential. And that must be heartbreaking for him. Oh, and especially when you bought this property and it had no listing on it, you had no idea that this was even going to be a possibility in the future. And then to have it arise as you're looking forward to go into that next step in your life, like doing that development, it's, it's soul crushing. Dual density criteria, that's something that I think a lot of people haven't got their head around yet. We, we generally see the numbers, you know, the codes on the, on the page, R20 slash 40, and we just think, oh, it's R20 or it's 40, whatever we want. Most people don't realize that to get to R40, the council generally has a list of criteria in their planning policy that you need to satisfy before they allow you to subdivide at R40. It might be a very simple criteria like, uh, you know, everyone needs to have their garage come off one driveway. But for example, like the city of Kalamunda, it might be an extensive list or the city of Belmont, which has massive cost implications to your subdivision to actually get it done and, and might erode most of the profit in doing so. Yeah, so you're, when you have the split zoning, it's your, your zoning is that base one and there's, like you alluded to, the different criteria that there may be. The council is giving you the opportunity to have this high density if you can meet these other criteria. So it's an objective or something that they're looking for in that area and doing the dual density enables them to have a bit more control over what the outcome is going to be. Um, so it is a benefit having that split zoning. It does give you more options. You just need to be aware at your level for that particular property what are those requirements going to be? Finally, in that planning space, I think recognizing the different uh, tax implications or cost implications from the different councils. Every council have their own, uh, I guess, application to things like public open space and outline development plans and council contributions for, for development. Uh, and these things can cost tens of thousands of dollars. Yep. Um, so an example would be the city of Coburn who have a DCA policy. So it's a development control area that they've actually allocated for each suburb a certain value for each additional lot that you want to subdivide on. Just an arbitrary number so that ar you have to pay as a tax. Yep. It's just, so any additional lot that you want to create, you're paying that set number. And that just helps to for them to actually 
add some more value into that immediate community by upgrading the services that are there. So as we can see with all these small little things, I guess, if you haven't taken them into consideration, even across the bigger picture, all of that adds up to, you know, your mate at the barbecue saying, I did a subdivision and I made no money. It wasn't because subdivision is a bad idea. It's because your mate didn't mitigate his risks, didn't identify them and therefore paid the price. Uh, and I think that's the most important factor with any development. First priority should be risk mitigation. Second priority should be profit maximization. And third priority should be tax minimization. Now, if we can focus on that and make sure that we're focusing on staying away from the, uh, I guess, the hurdles in this process, then if you've got a good project in a good area where you recognize there's demand for that product, the profit should just come itself. Dave, thanks very much for, for coming in and, and riffing with me on this one. Uh, we'll, we'll have you in again soon, I'm sure. Thank you much. Okay, some of spotlight time. This week, we are talking about Como. A lot of people might not have even driven through there before. It's luckily one of those private suburbs that have thoroughfares outside of it on its boundaries. But if you think about South Perth, you think about Canning Bridge, you think about the lifestyle that comes in between that, that's Como. We've got our number one agent in today to chat. It's James Thompson. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Thanks very much, Trent, for having me. What would be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Como? Childhood, because it's where I grew up. Isn't so. that interesting how so many people still operate either in life or in business in the place they grew up? Yes, it is interesting. And had uh, my wife not grown up in Atterdale, I think we would still be living in Como, but she won that argument. So i <laughs> <laughs> lucky I get to go there for work. <laughs> Good, yeah. So uh, if for someone outside of uh, your background, if you could sell Como in the space of a sentence or two, what does it have to offer compared to its surrounding suburbs? Normally, I wouldn't have to say too much because it generally sells itself, but uh, given that this is a podcast and not a video, yes. <laughs> um, a close proximity to the river, so like neighbouring South Perth and Applecross, it's effectively on the river on one side without the price tag of those two suburbs. Fun fact about Como, actually, before the freeway was put in, um, Como Beach, as it's termed, uh, used to be a bit of a social hotspot for people from Perth that used to catch the train down to Preston Street and hang out. Isn't that the interesting thing? A lot of people wouldn't realise, especially people that haven't lived in Perth for more than 60 years, that before the freeway was there, uh, there were farmstead sort of big properties that pushed right up to the the beach there on the on the river uh, and people lived where essentially that uh, freeway there was no freeway there wasn't even a road yeah it's sort of hard to uh, comprehend for us isn't it because it's all we really know now but uh, i'd love to take a trip down memory lane or go back in time and uh, see what it was like i wonder what the government paid them for those blocks back in the day i'd shudder to think but i wish i bought one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we all wish we still had one. That look, and that's that's the interesting part of that precinct there now is that it benefits from the freeway access. Uh, it benefits from the South Perth Men's Street sort of you know lifestyle. Uh, it benefits also from what has been happening in a, as a I guess a contemporary vogue is the Canning Bridge precinct plan, which we'll talk about in the, in, uh, the next coming minutes. But the upgrades to the Mount Pleasant sort of Applecross area would also have an effect on Como lifestyle as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it will. And I think it will, um, I, I guess, put Como up on the same pedestal as those uh, suburbs are. If you live on the Applecross or Mount Pleasant side of Canning Bridge, but you commute to the city of South Perth for school or work or university, anyone that has to take that trip over the bridge at 7.30 in the morning will tell you it's not a great deal of fun with the traffic. So there's mm. lots of appeal to being on the city side of that bridge. A bit of uh, going you know, back 50 to 100 years in Como, uh, original block sizes, demographic, what were we talking about? What sort of, what sort of family or person 
were you to move into a place like Como back then? And what were you living on? Certainly back then we had uh, acreage, like a lot of Perth suburbs before. They were subdivided into what are now the quarter acre blocks around the 1940s and 50s. And then later and since that time, more recently subdivided further into what are now duplex or, or triplex developments. I would have thought like a lot of suburbs, especially a lot of suburbs just off the river, south of the river, they weren't as affluent an area or Como wasn't an affluent an area as it is these days, especially given the at the time, the lack of access to the city, given the freeway wasn't even there. It was sort of the sticks back then. Yeah, it's a when good you think point. about it now with such an inner city suburb. Yeah, it's sort of nonsensical when you think about it that way because um, it's surrounded by, and I'm sure was then, river and parkland. Um, but obviously since the connectedness from where Como sits to the city is six kilometres as the crow flies, uh, makes it uh, very appealing for a broad demographic of, of owner. Now, it's not the cheapest suburb to get into. Can it still, or is it still a, an accessible family suburb? Oh, most definitely. The great thing about Como, in my opinion, and the opinion of the people I meet that live there, is that it has broad appeal, depending on where you are on the... Tell uh, me about that. So you can buy a one-bedroom, one-bathroom in a unit in Como nowadays if you're a first-time buyer and investor for just over 200000 We're talking an older 60 70 Yeah, 60-70 style. You have all of the lifestyle benefits that we've just spoken about without the price tag. So if you're prepared to forego the 4 by 2 on a bigger block in the, the outer suburbs, then it's a good, a good place to start, I think. Now, what you're alluding to that from starting that low, and, I, and I, from my experience in Como as well, what it benefits from is decades of different levels of density development. So you've got your flats, you have your villas, you have townhouses, you still have quarter acre blocks, and you've got your mansions. What I'm assuming you're, you're, you're saying here is that there is a price point for everyone along the way based on the compromise of size. Absolutely, which is makes it the ultimate suburb for a real estate agent because I get to help people at every stage of their real estate journey. That is that if they buy their first home from me and I can help them trade up into their second villa, townhouse, then upgrade into a family home on a 500 square metre block, into a bigger house on a bigger block and then back down into a townhouse or a villa later on. So, so what you're saying is that your story isn't too uncommon to a lot of people's story in the suburb is that they look to you know, upgrade within the suburb? Absolutely. There's lots of cross-pollination between the suburbs within the city of South Perth. So be it an upgrade from um, Como into South Perth to buy a family home with kids at Wesley College or an upgrade from a a villa or a townhouse, as you referred to, into a family home on a large block near Penrose College or an investment close to Curtin University. It really has something for everyone. And then they might end up back in Como. Um, yes, they typically do either never leave or come back. It's also very popular for absentee owners, that is particularly farmers, country-based owners that have... You're right, it is. I, I know a few farmers who live around that area and Apple Cross Mount Pleasant as well. I wonder why that is. Um, because it's easy to get on and off the freeway. So and most of them are going south. It shortens their trip if they've been in the car for four hours already. The last thing they want to do is drive another half an hour, say, to the coast. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. You referenced some good private schools there. What about schools for the young ones? Como Primary School, very popular, and I've had a bit to do with that with the primary school over the years. Collier Primary School on the other side of Canning Highway, uh, is also a very good school by reputation. Obviously, Curtin University on the fringe. Um, so from an education perspective, you can start in primary school and go all the way through to university. 
are there pockets of Como in terms of value and, and affluence as well, uh, or is it fairly homogenous? Doesn't matter where you are in Como. Tell me about what it means to be on the on either side of it. Great question, and it's quite unique, I suppose, in that sense. Certainly, the river side of Canning Highway, so that's the western side of the highway, um, is termed by residents Como Beach. So there can be up to a twenty percent difference in value riverside versus non-riverside even if you're right on the freeway i mean i personally wouldn't want to have the freeway in front of my viewer every day are they having a downgrade in price compared to the street back yeah melville parade for example would uh, have to be discounted as canning highway would because of the noise factor but then you get a beautiful view of the river and the yacht club mm. so it really depends on what you're after but it the river- segments the market a little bit is that Maybe it does. Factor? Yeah. yeah, but there's still buyers that tell me regularly we don't want to be on the non-river side. And that's because you get to walk to the Preston Street Cafe Precinct where we have the iconic Signet Cinema, um, cafes, restaurants. Caroly. Uh, Caroly with the uh, Western Australia's best steak sandwich, 25 it years is. running. It definitely is. <laughs> I've tried it. <laughs> I have too, as you can tell. Um, but the exception to that rule trend is that if you have daughters going to Penrose College then you would rather be on the non-river side so they or you didn't have to cross Canning Highway for them to get to school. Yeah, like a walk or ride the bike. I th- and I, I, personally, I like the idea of, of my kids being able to have that lifestyle. Yeah. So Look, I'm sure I, a lot of people do as well. A, a lot of the time, I think things like that are placebo, but there are some definite benefits or advantages to being on one or the other side. I think it's all perception. Whether it does or doesn't really add that much value to your lifestyle, It's we're talking values here at the end of the day and whether people perceive that before buying that's the most important thing. Yeah, well, perception is reality, as we know. And if you read any one of my marketing descriptions for the properties I've got in Como Beach, there's always a reference to it being in that part of Como because that gets buyers' attention. Let's move on to price points and, and who's buying and selling off for you. Let's start with that. Who Who is your typical buyer, if you can give me one, and who's your typical seller right now? The good news for me is that there isn't necessarily a typical demographic because I'm selling properties from 300000 at the low end up to $2.5 at the high end. And everywhere in between. I'm surprised that there's not as much investor activity happening yet, um, given the return on investment. You can buy a $300,000 unit in Como that will rent for $330 a week. Mm. So that's I, almost I think a 6% people return. Are still in a, it's, at least on a passive investment side, James, I think people are still in a bit of a hermit phase, a bit of a turtle phase where as much as there is a slightly better yield than there was, especially given compared to mortgages, people were still pretty nervous about life in that passive investment space with property in Perth. Uh, once bitten, twice once shy. Once bitten, twice shy, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree. And it's because of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to real estate, uncertainty is not a good thing. People would rather know that prices are going up or going down yeah. or staying the same rather than not knowing what's coming next. And that's why I think what you've got right now, what you would be seeing in your bubble is, which is the same in a lot of suburbs as well, especially in the value suburbs or the premium suburbs, is you've got astute owner-occupiers buying in, seeing value at, at this time and price, and they're t- probably taking up most of your time. They are, but I'm still seeing a lot of buyers buying for more lifestyle or emotional reasons than mathematical or economic reasons, if that makes sense. That is that they either already live in the suburb or they have some connection to it. And so they're looking to find a home that they might be in for the next five to 10 years. And so the conversation, of course, I'm having with every buyer that I meet is if you're not planning to sell this property in the next three years, then don't wait. Anyone specific that's selling out of out of Como right now? Yep. Um, I'm finding that there are a few 
um, investors that have owned for say 15, 20 years or more that are now just looking to uh, to capitalise, take the money out of that investment and spend it. Yeah. Um, I think coronavirus has taught them as well as the rest of us that now's a good time to take a holiday yeah. when it's legal again, yeah. enjoy life yeah. uh, because we don't know what tomorrow's headline is going to be. Um, there's also a lot of people that are looking to help f- their children into their first home. Uh, I've noticed um, more so than ever, whether or not it's just my perception that there's a lot of younger people, not necessarily just first homeowners, but a lot of younger people that are leaning on mum and dad to make this first property decision. Mm. And there's also people that are looking to either sell to downsize or sell to upsize in the suburb at the moment too. I, I guess, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a, a fantastic time given there's a bit more strength in the demand supplier relationship in the market for people to try and move. I think there's definitely a lack of confidence for potential sellers that even if they listed, they get a sale, whether it was at the price that they wanted or not. So I think the last four or five months, given the big increase in transaction numbers and the tighter supply numbers, people feel a bit more confident that if they were looking to make that transition, it would actually happen. Yeah, you're right. And I actually just wrote an article about this yesterday, as it turns out, for my Como Suburb report, which is coming out next week, the heading of which was The Perfect Storm. And that speaks to the fact that clearly there is uncertainty and there are people not making decisions because of the broader economic situation as a result of COVID. But if you took COVID away and put a line down the middle of the page and on the left-hand side, you put reasons that you should be buying now, we've got record low interest rates still. Um, We've got property prices probably, hopefully, at the bottom of their cycle. We had rents on the increase. Um, And right now we have, for the first time since 2015, I think, less than 11,000 properties for sale in Perth. That number trending down. Yeah, it's nearly 10,000. And we had week on week 100% growth in sales volume. So that tells me that if you're a buyer, rather than think, I'll wait in case prices go down, even if they did, What's to say that the property you want to buy is going to be on the market at that time? No, very true. And that's a common misconception with people reading crap out of domain and realestate.com <laughs> is that they get caught up seeing one national median house price changes, which is so arbitrary uh, and really dependent on what actually sells in that time frame. Totally inaccurate too. Totally inaccurate. And also even just suburban median house price sales. I know we always like to talk about it as, a, as an arbitrary number at the end of all of our segments, but... They're useless numbers and that's what I try and make, make fun of is that they mean nothing and they certainly mean nothing for your specific property you're trying to buy or sell. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more and I have this conversation whenever I can with people because it's about nuance. You know, At any given time, there might be an oversupply of a particular kind of property that's going to put downward pressure on yours if you own the same one or vice versa. Mm. And supply and demand fundamentally is what drives price. So we're able to create competitive environments at the moment where we're seeing a lack of supply of a particular kind of property, still strong demand for it, 15 to 20 people at a home open, and then multiple offers achieved and a premium price. Look, I tell you what, I think most agents will agree with me. If you didn't know there was a pandemic right now and you just told me anecdotally about how many people were coming through your home opens, uh, how many offers you were writing, and you compared that to last year, you'd be saying you're in a growth phase right now. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's quick fire on the price points. You've already told me it's about 200 grand for the smallest, oldest flat you've got in, in Como. What about the three by one villa? Depending on size and quality, anywhere from high 400s to mid 500s. Okay. Uh, the next price point, would that be 
a small older house on Duplex a half, half. Of blocks. Yeah. Yep. So your typical um, older style built strata, renovated three by one or three by two is mid sixes to mid sevens, depending on size and quality. I'm guessing the next one is the older townhouse. Um, either an older townhouse or an executive style townhouse, say on the riverside, that was once, as we were speaking about off air, 1.3 million. That's now come back to about a million to 1.1, 1.2. And what about your old development or just you know big full-size quarter acre blocks? Well, we sold one at auction two weekends ago under the hammer, um, 1,077 square meter R2030. So it had triplex redevelopment potential, but wasn't guaranteed for 975. Tell you what, that's there's there's definitely longer term value in that. And then how expensive? Can it get when James Thompson is selling in Como? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, back in 2014, I think I set the residential sale price record for a, a house at that time for 40 Leonora Street, which was a brand new executive style 4x3 by Prima Homes, who are a boutique home builder, on a 506 square meter block for $1.98 million. There you go. So they're probably back in the mid ones now? Yeah, yeah. I hope the Look, buyer's not listening. Oh, but I think I think to be to be frank, what it does is it just demonstrates that when you compare the top end prices for South Perth and Applecross and Mount Pleasant, uh, you're getting some good value. I think for some good product if you can find it in Como. This is entirely the message that I'm trying to convey. So hopefully this platform does help to get that message across because ultimately it comes back to why you're buying and how long do you plan to own yeah. in terms of useless information that we were speaking about before for what it's worth the median house price in Como at the moment is 875000 it would have got up to high 900s back then uh, and the median unit price 455 but still a unit is categorised as anything which is a strata so it's yeah. not a unit necessarily it could be a townhouse in a complex of two Yeah, so yeah. it's not exactly accurate is it? Let's talk about subdivision and development a couple of interesting things about Como uh, which I'm sure you'll expand on from my perspective is when I'm looking at it, I'm looking for the quarter acre blocks where I can put three townhouses on there. Numbers don't seem to be working on it right now just because of the prices that the townhouses are not selling for. But more interesting to me, which you know, seen some movement in the last couple of years in terms of what people are doing is how Como is involved with the Canning Bridge Precinct Plan. Can you explain this whole realm to us? Sure. It's sort of the elephant in the room in any conversation you have with local residents. Either they're um, staunchly against it or sort of loosely for it. Um, and looking to capitalise on it if they can. Exactly. But the $1.7, $1.8 million prices that were being paid for those sites on the riverside or near the river aren't being paid anymore because the, the buyer for those properties, developers aren't buying those properties at the moment because there's no saleability well, at the other end. They don't want to build apartment buildings right now. They don't want to build something they can't sell. Yeah. So I actually think there's more upside in small-scale development at the moment. Um, a recent case study, I sold a place in Como on Bruce Street, older-style character home, 990-square-metre block on a corner, and the buyers subdivided a 500-square-metre uh, portion of the block that was the backyard Sold and kept that, the old house. And kept the old house. They sold that vacant block, which uniquely had a 23-metre frontage for 613000 Yeah. And then they spent in the order of about $200,000 renovating the house that was there, which became a four-bedroom, two-bathroom renovated character home on 500 square metres for 900000 There you go. So less risk uh, and a bit more upside at the end. Yeah, and I think that's a general... Uh, for me at least, the way that we're running across all of Perth is just because you could doesn't mean you should. 
and taking ego out of the equation it's great to think we're all going to be sydney apartment developers right but we just don't have the market for it right now and then we're either in it to in it to uh show off to our mates or we're here to make money i know what i'd prefer to be doing right now yeah i think we're on the same page there and it's like you're in my head which is a scary thought for you but i actually spoke to somebody on the phone yesterday that said james when do you think a developer is going to come and buy these 23 units in this complex that i live in and i said well let's average them out at three hundred thousand dollars each you help me out with the maths but that's over six million dollars they'd have to pay for the site yeah there's absolutely no way that it's feasible and my exact words to her were just because you could you can doesn't mean you should that's the the theme across perth right now and that's why we try and fly under the radar do the stuff that maybe people aren't really noticing but um for me the sexiest outcome is actually making money right now Precisely, and I think the best way to make sure that you mitigate your risk and maximise your profit is to speak to someone like you that has the experience to show people the path that they should really be taking. Well, thank you. And I would suggest that uh, actually more importantly is I'm talking to people like you because at the end of the day, making a, having a million dollars on paper to me is worth a lot less than 400 grand in my hand. You know, and that's the difference is you can make anything look good on paper as an idea, especially apartments. Uh, but if you can't sell them, uh, they're probably the biggest burden you're ever going to have in your life. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's the reality right now is people as, as consumers, as buyers, they're more interested in, in no strata fees in green total lots or, or street facing lots and, and their own, their own uh, little footprint. I think a lot of it's reputational, isn't it? Because um, apartments are a little bit on the nose, um, you know, with circumstances like with Civic Heart where deposits had to be refunded. Uh, I think that anybody that was caught up in that type of situation that put their life on hold for three to four years for no outcome is probably not going to buy an apartment off the plan ever again. Look, you've got one going up uh, in Como. It's called Paradiso. Mm. How's that going? What do you think about it? It seems by promotion from the developer to be doing quite well. Obviously, 87 Robert Street, which is the addition apartments, uh, it's an ABN group development, Dale Alcock. So clearly they had the advantage of not having to have pre-sales. And they were first to the market, which was bold, but it seems to have paid off since then, I think, because economically conditions have got worse. The demand for that finished product's not what it was. Uh, Como as a suburb is interesting. Because there hasn't been, up until now, a lot of apartment development in the past. There might be one or two, prior to these ones that are going up now, apartment developments of, say, 8 to 12. Because it's not a suburb that really had an appetite. The the demographic of buyer didn't have an appetite for that type of property. Do they now? No. Interesting. Not as much as I think they need to. I still supply outweighs demand. You look on the map, right? You look on the map and you go, this suburb should be full of them. Just like how Mount Pleasant moved, finally. But you think, surely, geographically, and with what's on offer in terms of a walk score, this suburb should just be apartments. Yeah, and you're it's right. not. And, and you just... It has to be, for me, the one reason it's not. is just we don't have the push of population and that subset, that socioeconomic of population that filtering through into the city... Uh, that you need to justify that compared to a Melbourne, Sydney, Queensland. It just seems so much easier to to fees up and to justify and to complete and sell apartment buildings on the East Coast compared to Perth. In air, And you look at, if you were to plop our city on the East Coast 
I think someone with no background of Perth who came from East Coast would go, I'll have that site, I'll have that site, I'll have that site, I'll have that site. These are all going to be apartment buildings. It's going to be great. It just doesn't seem to have really caught on here yet. Yeah, and a couple of interstate developers have had exactly that idea and have purchased those types of sites with the view to developing them into apartments. And a lot of them have got to, to pre-sale marketing phase and just had no chance of getting the development off the ground. With the, They must be scratching the, their head. I think they are. And actually, a lot of the most successful developments that I've ever been involved in selling have been where the developers come to me first and said, as the local expert, tell me what does the marketplace want? Mm. So I think the best way to have success is to ask the person that's going to be buying the product you're selling what they want and then give that to them. One uh, development, and this is outside of Como, that has done exceptionally well. It's my favorite development. It hasn't even come off the ground yet. It's Sanctuary on Wren Street in Mount Pleasant. Sure. Now, John Woon is a very smart man. He is. We used to work together, actually. Him yep. and I at Evolution Realty many years very, ago. Very astute man. And uh, what I love about what he's done is he's not tried to overextend. Uh, he's not tried to uh, be something that it is not. And he understands his market and he's made less and bigger apartments at a very high end to suit the market. Yep. Do you think that might be a more amenable product than the sort of cookie cutter boxes you get most of the time with these apartment who, apartment developers who are trying to just make the numbers work on the front end? Yeah, I think whenever you start with the person and the product first and put the profit at the end, then that's a better way of having success. That could also work in Como if you went that way. I think it could work anywhere, Yeah, that model. You said that the median house price was $875,000. James Thompson, what would you buy with $875,000 in Como right now? I'd be inclined to buy something that had at least 500 square meters of land, ideally on its own title, but not exclusively, because I think the old adage is more relevant now than it's been for a while, and that is better to buy something that has land that you own because land appreciates and buildings depreciate. Mm. So, you know, be prepared to sacrifice for now what you ideally want to have in five years' time and just wait it out because I think there's more upside in something that might have 5 or 10% capital growth over that period. So what are we getting for that price? What does it look like? So it's on 500 squares. Is it street fronting? Yes. Is it a four-by-two single story? Is it two-story? Four-by-two, single-level, renovated, extended character home. Yeah, there no you go. strata fees, no common walls. It sounds like a very middle of the range Como family. Yeah, and the great thing about that is that it's always going to be saleable. Mm. That is, there's always going to be demand for that type of home at the end when you're ready to move it on. I would think better to, if you had time and inclination, to buy something that hasn't had somebody else's renovation done to it because not only will you buy it less, but then you've got upside at the end. James, thank you very much. It's been one of my favorite episodes. It's gone probably longer than most, but. Uh, it's been super fun to chat about Como and, and I hope we can have you in again for another suburb. I'd love to. Thanks very much for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!